Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Crypto Hipsters Chronicles. This is your host, Jamil Hassan, the Crypto Hipster, where from the period of time of March 2021 through June 2022, I interviewed 182 founders, executives, entrepreneurs, artists, and authors from over 50 different countries and built a global audience in 165 countries while posting and producing my podcast at the Irish Tech News platform. Since then, I realized there's a lot of incredible content in the interviews that I had and my interviews with thought leadership podcast interviews that had amazing gems, amazing gems from um, all the guests that I was able to interview. And so I've chosen and decided to create the uh, Crypto Hipsters Chronicles series, which is a series of the gems, the, the little tiny pieces from each of the interviews that I had in the areas of Bitcoin, Ethereum, metaverses, NFTs, regulatory issues in crypto globally, art, and you name it across the wide spectrum of different verticals in blockchain and crypto industry and in fintech and mobility and sustainability as well. Uh, these are about 15 minutes long, each uh, chronicle, and has three, four, or five different segments from different interviews. So I hope you enjoy them. Uh, I hope you have uh, learned a lot. And if you'd like to um, listen to the full podcasts, they are available online at both the Irish Tech News um, and on Anchor. And uh, in a future date, will be available on the Crypto Hipsters station as well. So please enjoy and uh, talk to you soon. To Crypto Hipsters Chronicles, episode 26. Crypto 101, building a resiliency skill set. For this compilation, I gather four interviews. First is Denison Bartram, who's the founder of Tally. Second is Jonathan Dixon, who is an artist from Kildare, Ireland. Third, Eric Jackson, who is the CEO of CapLinked, the co-founder of TransitNet, and the author of the book, PayPal Wars. And fourth is the co-founder of this famous magazine, Lay Quinn. Enjoy. You've been here 10 years, so, you know, um, and I've been in it four. So one of the things that happened earlier on was this concept of gaslighting, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you've been gaslit. A lot of people have. And have you seen the reduction in gaslighting? Have you seen people, you know, who you know who have been gaslit be, you know, feel a sense of relief? How have you seen that dissipate or or change over 10 years? Um, I'll be honest. I'm not really super great on the definition of gaslighting. I, the term gets used a lot, but I've never actually looked it up. I I take it to interpret it as a kind of like weird bullying. Um, and I think the crypto community has always had a little bit of a problem with that. Uh, but now 
I, at least on my crypto Twitter, right? Like everyone's crypto Twitter looks a little bit different. Our crypto community looks a little bit different. Uh, once things become sort of normalized, a lot of that goes away. Uh, a lot of the early sort of zero sum uh, behavior sort of dissipated when people started to see that the, the, the opportunity is so large, there's like enough for everyone. Uh, these communities, you know, I, I follow a lot of like the sort of like NFT space and they're all really positive people, right? So, you know, when you, you sort of get into like the doodles um, world of like the doodles NFT or dope wars NFT or, you know, uh, punk, like these, these are all really positive people. You know, it's, it's funny to see how um, today crypto Twitter like wakes up and everyone types GM, like, you know, good morning. They are really positive. My, my Twitter feed is filled with people being like, that's it, folks. Today's the day. I'm quitting my job. I'm going full time into NFTs. You see that all the time. Everyone's like, "Welcome, rainbows!" Like it's a, it's a, it's pretty fascinating to see. There was once a time in crypto where it was just like we're fighting the bankers and we're fighting the government and we're fighting other blockchains and we're fighting other developers to to just being like, "What's up? Show me, show me your latest NFTs," which sounds silly, but you know, and early, I think in NFTs, people were really, you know, trying to hate on the idea of like selling JPEGs. And then all of a sudden, all these artist shows show up and all these people who are, are other artists collecting other artists and they're just, they're having a great time, you know, and even if they're not getting rich, they're just having a great time. They've got a community, um, they have other people who are really supportive, you know, they sit around with their like PFP projects and they're like, you know what we should do? We should throw a party, you know, I'm not going to Art Basel, but suddenly all these nft projects like art basel for years has just been this like kind of like stuck up art world thing and it's just being totally overrun by all these people who are like good morning we're going to art basel and we're throwing a party for doodles yeah you know uh and and it's just you're it's it's such um uh, in many ways it's kind of funny and this is probably just like my feeling of it but crypto today is kind of a relief from all the rest of the world Right. Like if you like listen to the news you know, shooting this and like violence that and like grid like the politics and people hate this and hate that. And then you go into crypto and people are like, let's build the the future together, fam. Here's some rainbows for you. I drew new pictures. Let's raise some money and throw a party. It's just it, it has become a wonderful place to be. By far. Right. There's still negative stuff there. But by far, people are just so focused on building and positivity. It's that it's that non-zero sum thinking where, you know, you hold Ave, you also hold Una, you also hold Comp. You know, you don't want Comp to disappear. You're part of that community. You don't want this other community to disappear. You're part of that community. You know, so uh, I, I think that that, you know, I don't know that that has been really wonderful to see. It's national, um, national, uh, global, uh, mental health awareness month, May, the month of May, you know, so I'm wondering, you know, what role that memories or the getting back into your positive memories in your life could play in overcoming depressions and other mental health issues, um, you know, and tapping into that creative memory side, what role do you think that could play? Uh, straight away huge massively positive role um 
I have a big, um, I've, I'm running another, I'm also um, a painter as well, and I'm actually using um, the goings on in my head. So I do, I'm doing, working on a huge series of forest paintings, and I mean work, it's like in the Northern Romantic, Northern European Romanticism, where they use like um, nature as a metaphor for the human condition. So I'm very much tapped into the mental health part of things. Um, and I actually use anxiety and depression directly in my work. So the thing that I think is that, and I think it's a huge thing that goes on in our world at the minute. I've, you know, this thing where they call it like toxic happiness, where everybody's supposed to be happy all the time and you can't be depressed and you can't be sad and you can't. But I think um, based on what we were talking about earlier, the gamut of uh, memories, um, the memories that I've taken in these pieces that I've made, they run the full gamut of happy and sad. Some of them are devastating and some of them are really painful and hurtful. But I think we're supposed to feel all of those emotions. Um, and I think the way to deal say with you know given that this is mental health awareness month the way to deal with it is certainly not to try and get rid of it and certainly not to shy away from it it's actually um take it full on and try and work your way through it by actually acknowledging that sometimes you're supposed to feel sad and you're supposed to feel down and you're supposed to feel anxious that these are simply um like sadness is the flip side of happiness they both belong on the same coin there's no real difference between the two and we almost have this culture that teaches us that um everything is not okay unless it's happy and everything is not okay unless it's bright i kind of i enjoy the darker side of things and i use anxiety as a very positive tool it's incredibly positive for focusing you because if you if you shy away from anxiety, it can cause you all sorts of problems, but you actually embrace what it does. Anxiety increases your adrenaline, increases your heart rate, and increase your concentration. So if you can get your head around thinking that there's certain times in your life when that's actually of benefit to you. And as a visual artist, the intensity at which you can paint when you're having those feelings goes through the roof. So it's actually a very positive thing. And I, I don't say this in any, um, kind of offhand or blase way. I've first-hand experience of everything that I'm talking about. So absolutely, I think um, the memories of stuff, like, you know, living them and feeling them, the more you feel stuff, the more you get used to it. So I think that's, uh, I could probably ramble on about this a bit, but is that, have you got enough there, do you think? Now, you mentioned PayPal and you wrote a book called um the paypal uh, wars right um and so what were these paypal wars who won and how oh wow you know there they were it was a tumultuous uh period of a couple of years there uh jamil when i when i went to work at paypal and peter Thiel pulled me in in late 1999 um i really was excited about the technology you know and i thought that they had they had built something. They were just just launching it, just bringing it to market, and I was really excited to join the team that that he and and uh, and and Max had pulled together. You know, and they were bringing in some amazing people too, like Reed Hoffman, you know, who's later started LinkedIn, or, and uh, David Sachs, who uh, later started uh, uh, Yammer. Uh, just a real uh, incredible team. Chad Hurley, who's the uh, co-founder of uh, YouTube, is one of the first people I met there. So just like the talent was just incredible. So it was exciting to jump in and, and 
work with these people, but I had no idea just how tumultuous it would be over the next several years. We, the PayPal wars were basically felt like the world against PayPal because we jumped into something. We started having growth. We started being able to accelerate the adoption of this service, which originally was going to be focused on person to person transactions, P2P transactions, and then quickly shifted to be more uh, like B2C, uh, particularly around kind of eBay small merchants, um, where it was fulfilling a real need and helping uh, these small businesses uh, be able to, uh, you know, improve their um, improve their operations uh, by um, by enabling uh, transactions online. Uh, eBay was previously people were like putting a check in the, in the mail and mailing it or having to get a money order and mail it. It's ridiculous when you think about it. Um, but what we realized as we began to grow really quickly was that uh, there was going to be not just competition, which you could expect in a free market system, but also um, just a lot of hurdles and opponents that we didn't necessarily expect. Um, uh, certainly, there were other competitors. Elon Musk had a company called X.com, which is an online bank that was kind of our first competitor. And then the, the two companies ended up merging. That's how um, Elon became, uh, you know, a, a technically a co-founder of PayPal because uh, he'd started a, a company that merged with it. And so, um, but there were, there were other competitors. Um, Yahoo had a service and uh, Bank One uh, launched in with the service. Citibank later launched in with the service. So there were a lot of, lot of other competitors that were trying to do the same thing, but we also had uh, pushback uh, from many other sources. The credit card associations were very wary of PayPal. Uh, they didn't like uh, some of the things we were doing, and you know we were maybe uh, operating in a way that they hadn't seen before. So we we were constantly being um, harassed by them, and they were a major source of uh, how the how PayPal would be used. Uh, eBay itself became very hostile towards PayPal. They had their own credit card processing service that was an inferior product called BillPoint that they were trying to get people to use, and people preferred PayPal. The market, you know, the market spoke. But eBay was trying to disadvantage us and find ways to push us off their platform. So, you know, even our number one source of customers was was opposed to us. Uh, we had uh, we had fraud that came after us. We had organized crime try to use PayPal. Not that they hacked into PayPal. They just kind of walked in through the uh, the front door, took stolen credit card numbers that they'd gotten elsewhere. You know, they acquired those on the black market somewhere. And then they tried to use PayPal as a vehicle to siphon money off of those and get it out of PayPal, you know, send it to a bunch of different accounts and try to sneak it out um, through a wire at some point before that we could catch them and shut them down. So it's like this constant game of cat and mouse with organized crime. And then uh, we also, the, the government even came after us. So we had uh, just, we, we were a different type of animal. They didn't know what to think of us. So we had different uh, agencies throughout the, uh, throughout the United States and abroad that uh, really looked at us sideways and kind of thought, what are they doing? Like uh, Elliot Spitzer, who was um, later the governor, but at the time was the attorney general of New York State, uh, was uh, pretty hostile towards PayPal. Um, and, and there was even a, a, a brief period where we were shut down in the state of uh, Louisiana, I think it was. It uh, told us, like, we don't know what you are. We don't know if you're a bank or something else. So just cease and desist. Of course, we also published the uh we sent an email to all of our um users in that state and uh shared the <laughs> told them what had happened and shared the phone number of the uh the office that had made that decision and, and they i guess got so many calls that they quickly reversed course because they realized they were hurting people by denying them access to it but but i think the paypal wars quite simply were this this constant battle for survival 
that the company faced on all these different fronts in its early years of existence and uh, somehow miraculously uh, found a way to navigate that and ultimately uh, uh, not just survive, but turn into the, uh, you know, the biggest fintech company on the planet. Three things, conviction, patience, and resilience. Um, how for those have you, have those come together for you? Um, and how could people, uh, rely on those three things to move forward? Mm, so patience and resilience. What was the third one? Conviction. Conviction. Wow. Those, that's tricky. I'm not very patient. I've never been mistaken for a patient woman, but I try. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. I think all the best things in life, they don't come to you all in an instant. It comes from a lot of hard work and planting seeds that will later sprout, right? So patience is really important. And when I think about a lot of my work in this space in particular, I mean, when I started, I really didn't understand what a computer was as a concept. I think a lot of people don't, and we think we do because we use them, but we don't. We don't understand what, how it works, and I'm still learning how it works. So patience with myself, I guess, as I learn how things work and, and how they relate to me and how they can be useful to me or how they cannot be useful to me. There's sometimes that I will have to be very patient trying to work with my lightning node, and it will thwart me at every turn and be very problematic. And it's only with patience that I can figure out what tools are useful uh, for me in particular. And in terms of resilience, resilient, like we were talking about that being connections to other people, it also means being open to learn from other people. Maybe we don't agree on politics or maybe they have a completely different background from me and things they find interesting, I find boring and stressful and difficult. But being open to learning from them really helps and helps them too, right? Like we both gain a different perspective on this thing that we're very convicted and passionate about. So resilience is all about meeting other people where they're at and doing your best to just cooperate with them and to work with them and, and to collaborate maybe on things that you might've been intimidated to try. And, and conviction is just deciding that like you can't fail, you know, like, managing my own wealth or, or trying in this space, I might not be able to do everything that I want to do, but I can't give up. I will accomplish something. I will gain a tool. I will learn a new uh, process. I will, I will do something. And even if it's not like, you know, I aim for the stars and maybe land a little bit lower when it comes to operating my own hardware. Um, I think conviction is all just about deciding that like you cannot fail completely. You can only start somewhere. Like by the end of, of this, you will you will have started and you will understand where you need to go next in terms of your self-education.